Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Critics are calling Charles Cumming the heir to John Le Carre. Uncover the truth in a divided spy from New York Times bestselling author Charles Cumming. Booklist gives a divided spy a starred review calling it, quote, an airtight espionage plot full of unanticipated twists. Read A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming. For more information, visit adividedspy.com. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And tonight, a serial season two character returns in the news and real life true crime finally gets a conclusion. Plus, we review the Netflix documentary that's got true crime fans a buzz. Should you watch Shadow of Truth? We'll tell you what we think about that. So joining me right now is the host of These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, my true crime co-author, real-life husband, and favorite subtitled guy, Kevin Flint. Hello, Kevin. Ni hao. Stealing Toby's thunder, Kevin. Uh-oh. Not cool. I don't think he knows Mandarin, but... <laughs> also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, full-time cat lady, and part-time Snow Day Mom, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. It's going to be full-time Snow Day Mom here pretty soon, I oh, think. Thank God it's not full-time cat lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been that as well, because the cat is very out of sorts with the snow as well. <laughs> and rounding out the panel is noir novelist and semi-professional wet blanket Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Um, I've been so thrown off by, uh, by Kevin. I was trying to think of a witty Kevin thing to say. But I choked. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, Rebecca. Don't make yeah. fun of me, Rebecca. <laughs> You're my ride home, Rebecca. I have to be here. <laughs> that sounds about right, actually. Other people are going to say that, Rebecca. You've been moonlighting this week. I have been moonlighting. Tell everybody about the podcast you're going to be on. I actually like. was tapped to um, be a guest host. <laughs> you on said a- you were tapped. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's kind of a big deal because like Slate, like their podcast, like people actually listen to those. Well, well tell what um, Slate podcast are you? This week I am the guest host on Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast. Ooh, you are terribly right? qualified for that. <laughs> Which is a parenting <laughs> podcast. Never thought anyone would ask me my advice about parenting, but I'm on it this week with Gabriel Roth, the very, very smart writer and and Slate editor, and um, it's a lot of fun. It actually dropped Thursday morning, so you could check it out. The episode, I believe, might have the word Catalano in the title for uh, <laughs> kind of specific reasons. But anyway, check it out. My Slate's, so-called podcast. <laughs> Slate's mom and dad are fighting. That is the podcast. I was asked to guest host this week. It was pretty exciting for me. You are superstar. Nice. Yeah, somebody else got to produce it, too, which That's was like, it's really nice. I just got to sit and talk, and then I was done. One other thing I wanted to mention before we get going this week is we already know what we're going to be talking about next week. Oh, okay. Homework. Which is kind of a big deal. No, not homework for you. Homework for the three of us. <laughs> it is, because very often our podcast fans, you should know, we don't know what the hell we're going to be doing next week when we're taking this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually discovered a podcasting gem today, thanks to one of our Twitter followers. It's a brand new show. It just dropped. I think it's going to be really popular, so I think we're getting in early on the uh, bandwagon. It's called Missing Richard Simmons. Like sweating to the oldies, Richard oh, yeah. Simmons? like that Richard Simmons. Oh, my. 
It's produced by a guy who actually knows Richard Simmons Uh and who's wondering where the hell he's been for three years. Because as you may or may not know, Richard Simmons has gone away. He's gone missing. AWOL? He went from being like a total on every talk show all the time, on Howard Stern, Uh on David Letterman, on every daytime talk show all the time. And WZID in Manchester, New Hampshire? Yes, to just for about three years. He's been like a complete recluse. Nobody has seen or heard from him. And there are a lot of conspiracy theories about why. But um, I'm, I'm, I blame the Scientologists. <laughs> It's like the Scientologist wife. He's out in the the work camp or something. (laughs) I don't know about that, but I I really, really, only one episode has dropped so far. Maybe two will have come out by next week, I hope. But um, I really want you guys to listen to it so we can talk about it. I have Richard Simmons stories, too, so we can talk about it. I know. Yeah, okay. You do. So I would like to introduce a brand new segment to start the show this week. Kevin, I'm going to show you what this says. Can you just read this for us? Sure. Hate mail. Yes, this new segment is called... Hate mail. Um, be- awesome. <laughs> Toby's like, what are you getting us into? Because, by the way, we do get a lot of really, really positive email from our listeners, feedback about the things mm-hmm. that they love about the show. But you know what? Every week, I guess it's because we're becoming more popular, we're mm-hmm. also getting more criticism through the mail. So people love us so much, we're at such a high standard, that's but, why. Well, some of the criticism is valid, and I, I think that some people just want to like give us feedback about what we talked about. No, it's not. They suck. But read it anyway. <laughs> so I only have a couple this week, but the first one is actually um, directed toward a member of this panel, and it begins like this. This is from a listener named Hillary. Boy, and I was finally starting to like Toby. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> oh. So what this is about is about last week's podcast. It's actually, she has an interesting factoid she wants to throw your way. This is actually about the context of Michael Peterson's friend, Elizabeth Ratliff, being found dead at the bottom of a staircase in Germany. Remember you mentioned, Toby, that it was very unlikely that one person would encounter two people dead at the bottom of two separate staircases. Yeah. She actually cites a lot of medical information in her email, a lot of words I can't pronounce, basically (laughs) pointing out that that woman, Elizabeth Ratliff, was found to have had a brain condition and an aneurysm. She had a bleeding disorder, Willebrand's disease, and complained of headaches before the fall, which readily suggests she had bleeding going on inside the brain. And her autopsy report, which apparently is available online, I don't know how I feel about that, she explains that she had tissue destruction in the cerebral hemispheres, which joined the brainstem, yada, yada, yada. And basically, there's a whole lot of uh, physical evidence and autopsy evidence that shows that this woman had a medical condition that caused her to fall down the stairs. So, um, Toby, would you like to respond to this piece of hate mail from this wonderful listener named Hillary, who I know actually really does like you a lot? I'm sorry that she's wrong about this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, no, I, t- I hear what she's saying. I think, I mean, but she ended up at the bottom of the stairs and then his wife ends up at the bottom of the stairs. It just, I don't know. I, I guess I don't really have a very strong feeling about it, but it's a bad luck coincidence if that's all it is. All right. I'm going to defend Toby, even though I disagree with him. I mm-hmm. do defend him because it is what the prosecution portrayed that event as, yeah. that it was just more than just coincidence. Mm-hmm. So while it, it medically it, it, it may have been a cerebral hemorrhage or was an aneurysm, whatever it was, I understand why there's a lot of people that say that looks funky, because it does. I mean, how many times has that happened in somebody's life? Never happened to me. Mm-hmm. I agree with Toby. I mean, I, I understand that she did have this medical condition, but it just, I still find this just too coincidental that these two women both fell down the stairs. Maybe he had nothing to do with it. It's something that you can't help not be suspicious of. It was important because he ended up adopting that dead woman's two children. They were his and adopted daughter. And they love him. And they love him, yes. Yeah. But this I'm just going to say, weird. if a second President Bush choked on a pretzel... <laughs> You'd start saying, hmm, I don't know That's about right. those pretzels. That's a good point. Well, I, yeah. You can't obviously convict a guy because of that. Newsflash, they of, did. <laughs> just in terms of talking on a podcast, no, uh, it does seem strange. It does. All right, everybody stop. I want us all to say at the same time, thanks, Hillary. Thanks, thanks Hillary. Hillary. That wasn't so hateful. No. No, it was, yeah. Just you wait. Oh, here's a <laughs> oh, hateful good. one? All right, all right. Is this coming after me again? No. <laughs> um, that was merely critical. Not this, this time. This is hateful? They're actually two directed at me this week. All right. Uh-oh. Um, and the first one, I believe, is responding to a part of the podcast last week where I maybe felt like I wasn't getting a chance to express myself. All I said was that it sounds to me like this you is You sound produced- really jealous to me, Rebecca. I, well, I, you know why I'm jealous? Because oh I, 
but I'm I, just messing with you. <laughs> you get the, the mansplaining going on right now. It's killing me. Um, you know, so basically, like, um, we know that Sarah Koenig and Dana Chivas, like, we hear the transparency. Like, they went out. They yeah. did the shoot. Stop talking. They Whoa. went out. <laughs> what the, what uh, the hell? I'm not including that. But seriously, yeah, stop right. talking. <laughs> This is from a listener named Janiel, and she says, Hello, Rebecca. So, I have been an adamant listener of your podcast, and most of the time, love it. You're also talented, intelligent, and well-spoken. On a good day, Rebecca, you come off as arrogant, which most of the time I'm okay with, because a sister can back it up. <laughs> However, on the last episode, your arrogance was so out of control, you came off as a petulant child. Very difficult to listen to. Just saying. All right. So let me move on to the next one. <laughs> There's more. All right. Um, and this is the other piece of hate mail I got this week from a listener named John. Rebecca, love the podcast, but please stop laughing at virtually everything Kevin says. Hey. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. John, 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 John. John, back the truck. Easy soda pop. Here's what he says. We get it. You love him and think the sun and moon rise and set over his ass. Ass spelled with two dollar signs. Please, though, it's enough of an irritant to stop listening. <laughs> wow. I think we both got punched in the nose on that one. Yeah. Ooh. So, guys, I just wanted to just say, um, Laura and Toby, I'm really sorry if my petulance and constant laughter have made doing this podcast irritating for you. <laughs> How can you be so joyful and mean at the same time? <laughs> I know. Oh, my gosh. Didn't I just say last week, stop laughing? You did. <laughs> I did. No more laughing. There's no laughing here. This segment sucks. <laughs> no more hate mail. Well, I will tell you something, and this is a phenomenon that I pointed out to Kevin this week, is that we do get you know some negative feedback sometimes. We get a lot. We get mostly like really positive feedback in our email box, and by the way. negative hate feedback is not necessarily meant to like, cut us down. It's actually people right. are trying to be constructive. Right. Crimewriters on at gmail.com. Yeah, and most fine. of the negative feedback starts with, I love your podcast. But yeah, and that's that's fine. <laughs> but I will say I've noticed a pattern. I don't think we've ever gotten a single negative email about Laura Bricker in the history. Oh, not true. I know oh, the no. one. There was oh, one. No, that there... was fine. <laughs> well, what was the one about? <laughs> By the way, I'm not inviting it. I basically I'm just yeah, pointing no. out that Laura, like you. Laura, apparently... do you remember? You want to you want to give it up because I think I forwarded it to you. I can't remember. When we were talking, what was it, Kevin? We were, well, we were, have been talking about the Anand Syed case for months. Right? Oh, when she was over it? Re Rebecca, oh, yes. Yeah. Laura just said, yes. I'm over it. But that wasn't about Laura. Yes. That was about something she said. It's not the oh, same yeah, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like saying no, Laura it was, said, it, yeah. Yeah, but Why it do you was have the to person be such was pretty a cat upset. Lady. <laughs> <laughs> but we get emails with your about morally ambiguous cats getting <laughs> VD. <laughs> but we get emails about you know Kevin's dad jokes. We get emails about you know Toby's negativity or you know people think I hate Canada. Yeah, we get emails about <laughs> my hell? I love Canada. My <laughs> petulance and my laugh and my obnoxious cheerleader voice. Laura, only, only she got one piece of negative feedback in two and a half years, and it's about, about something she said that was substantive. I'm jealous. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Well, yeah, wait till next week. I'm sure I'm going to get barraged. Oh <laughs> you, you've opened this is the like a floodgates. I know. It's going to be like. <laughs> P.S., by the way, Laura, we're the ones who actually get the email at crimewritersonit at gmail.com. So, like, you don't even have to look at it. <laughs> I know. I know. But I'm sure it's going to come up now. I can hardly wait. So, send it my way, people. <laughs> So the person who comes up with the most hateful email about Laura will win a Prime Writers on T-shirt. <laughs> we don't have those anymore. You don't have those? I'm thinking about getting them made again, but we'll have to talk All about right, it. Right, yeah. All right. So um, I would like to move on to another segment that we regularly do in this podcast. Do you want to read that, Kevin? True Crime Podcast Update. Big news in the world of politics collides with something that is well within our wheelhouse. I'm going to play some tape for you guys, and I'm going to ask you to tell me if you can guess who is featured in this clip. Well, wait, did people die during this search for Bergdahl as a, you know, yes. As no, the answer, the answer is, Sarah, the answer is yes. Okay. Okay. So if somebody was on a mission to go find an American, you know, did the guy, did a soldier walk down a road and, a, and an IED blew up? And if the soldier was walking down that road in an area where, he would not have been had it not been for the search for Bergdahl. And in fact, his mission, their, their tactical mission was to, you know, conduct a patrol and, and uh, try to find intelligence or try to find any indications of where this soldier might be. And, the, and in fact, was blown up by that IED or others wounded. 
that's a no-brainer. I agree. That does. That, that does. That, seem that, those like are a those are dots. Those are dots. I those are dots. I I connect. <laughs> All right. Would anybody like to venture a guess as to who's featured in that clip? Toby, Laura, anyone have a guess? Does it have Russian subtitles if you're watching it? (laughs) I'm guessing that you know who we're talking about, Toby. Kevin's drunk uncle. (laughs) Wait. Of course, that is former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, who um, was featured in the final episode of Serial Season 2. Now, we should mention that our friend Wyrick and many other people have since said that the so-called dots that Flynn is talking about in that clip don't actually exist. He didn't actually produce any dots. He can't point to any dots. He just says there are dots, and therefore... Wyrick on the Task and Purpose podcast, at the time of Serial Season 2, not today, he was uh, very adamant that he would love to cross-examine General Flynn about connecting those dots. You know, he thought it it was just a a stretch in logic to say that anything related to anything tangentially to Bergdahl was Bergdahl's fault. Now, we do very much steer clear of politics in this podcast. It's just kind of like not in the wheelhouse of what we talk about. But I do have one question because we have learned a lot about General Michael Flynn this week. Politics aside, we've just learned a lot about sort of how he operates, how Mm -hmm. he thinks, how he talks. Is there something we hear in that clip and there's something we hear in sort of what he says there that jives with his worldview as we've learned about it this week that we now know that General Michael Flynn has or seems to have? You know, I don't think it's even political because I think conservatives probably feel betrayed by him and liberals didn't like him to begin with. But yeah, I mean, I think it's bending reality to fit your outlook or prejudices in that case. He wants Bergdahl to be as big a traitor as possible. So he's like, yeah, people died. It's not exactly clear what happened and what orders he's either given or interpreted the way people were talking about certain things. But he took it upon himself to engage in highly inappropriate and perhaps illegal talks with Russians. And I think in furthering his worldview and then lying about it. I think the Russians were kind of like, Weren't you the guy from Syria? (laughs) You're the dot guy. (laughs) You're the dot guy. I just want to mention, too, that that episode of Serial Season 2, which was the finale of Season 2, also produced the favorite tiny little bit of sound that's ever been produced by Serial, at least as far as Kevin's concerned. I'm just going to play that real quick. So, Flynn, he's a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) It's my my ringtone, motherfucker. I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) To me, Michael Flynn sounds like somebody who's very black and white. Yeah. Right? There's no subtlety. There's no nuance in his thinking. And that's sort of the problem with season two and the whole Bergdahl case is that there is nuance to his case. No, there isn't. (laughs) (laughs) But there is. And that's why there's a lot of people that see things as black and white, and they don't see things in shades of gray. Right. In season one, it's either Anand Syed either killed Heyman Lee or he didn't. Right. So the fact that Bergdahl is responsible for some of what happened to him and not for other things that happened to him and maybe for things that happened to other people, that's a a harder thing to get around. And Michael Flynn is, is somebody sort of on the, it doesn't matter, the middle doesn't matter, it's yes or no, and he sees everything as black and white. And also, you know, we've been talking a lot about then candidate Trump's views and his public comments about Bo Bergdahl. I mean, maybe it's chicken egg here, but, you know, when Mike Flynn is whispering in your ear a lot about national security, if Bergdahl came up between the two of them, we obviously know they're simpatico. I think we know that he did, and I think we know that Mike Flynn did actually advise him on the campaign trail. He either reinforced the position or he he grafted it. You mean the the trading trader who traitored? That one? That position? (laughs) What was it? He was a no good, it was over (laughs) no good trader. three times fast. (laughs) No good dirty trader? No good dirty trader. Yeah. It's a very interesting connection there, and I, I only wanted to bring this up because I tweeted last week that it was the same guy, and a lot of people on Twitter didn't seem to know that. So I just wanted to remind people that um, we have actually met Mike Flynn in our podcast listening days, and it's an interesting connection, I think. I just want to move on and cover something else that happened in the news this week. Kevin, you want to introduce this little segment? True crime update. Thank you, Kevin. There was an update in the news about one of the most infamous crimes in New York City history this week, one that forever changed the way we view kidnapping and the safety of our kids. 
Kevin, do you want to just run down with us what happened in the Aton Pates case this week? Sure. Pedro Hernandez was convicted of the kidnapping and killing of Aton Pates. Aton, as you know, disappeared walking to a bus stop in New York City in 1979. And there was this massive search. And the national media attention really stoked fear in many parents and affected the way that they raised their kids. Hernandez's first trial ended in an 11 to 1 hung jury. And the police said that he lured Aton into the basement of a deli by offering him a soda and then strangling him when he was down there. And his body was never recovered. Over the years, this is interesting, Hernandez had told people that he had hurt or killed a child. And nobody had really done anything. But in 2012, his brother-in-law called the police with suspicions that Pedro was talking about Aton. The only evidence is Hernandez's confession, but the defense pointed out that he has a very low IQ and a personality disorder, and that's a reason to distrust his confession. And they also pointed to a sex offender who had been living in the area at the time of the disappearance, but the jury didn't go for that this time. Uh, Aton was the first missing child to appear on a milk carton, right? which soon became the standard way of publicizing missing children cases. And because you think about it, at the time, there was no social media, right? and and newspapers were very local in nature. So printing the posters on a milk carton was actually a very clever way of covering sort of a large regional area, but it became very emblematic of the missing child, kidnapped child Story, story and culture yeah, and yeah. the way it, it burned itself into the national consciences. The New York Times said that the Aton Pates case erased, quote, baseline norms for what was considered acceptable freedom for children that have yet to be rewritten. Right. Because as I recall, his parents let him walk to the bus stop for the first time ever by himself. And that's when he was taken. And after there's a delineating point in yeah. sort of social history that after that, it was considered the right thing to do to give your kid right. that kind of freedom. Now it's irresponsible. That. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I actually want to throw this to you, Laura, because, you know, we grew up, I think, in the milk carton era. By the way, does mm-hmm. anyone know if a kid in the on a milk carton has ever been recovered yes. because of milk carton? I was very surprised, but yes, there have been really? success stories on that. Huh. I've always really? heard but, you know, that. But I've also heard, you know, the thing where they fingerprint kids in school? Mm-hmm. My understanding, and someone may prove me wrong, but there's never been a child recovered from the fingerprint program. Right. Well, But the milk hmm. carton program apparently in some cases has worked. Huh. I think this is the case, this and the Jacob Wetterling case, which actually happened years afterwards. But this case, and I think also the Adam Walsh case, mm-hmm. I think really stamped our era as far as growing up and being parents and parents being afraid. Do you think about this stuff in your parenting life? Do you think about your child having some freedom and being snatched? Is this part of your subconscious? You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, he's in an era now where we have two elementary schools. And once you get to the bigger elementary school, when you're a little older, a lot of kids start walking to school on their own. And I'm surprised to see third and fourth graders walking to school on their own. And and sometimes I say, mm, and my son asked me the other day, can I walk to school? And I'm like, no. And there's also, the, you know, a really well-known missing child case in the town that I live in. So I think people where I am maybe are a little bit more aware, but I'm definitely, I have been accused and I've been accused this week of being always too worried about things happening, um, (laughs) not being snatched. I was accused of that when I wouldn't let my son drive the tractor the other day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, jeez. Mom, you worry too much. I can't use the wood chipper, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's a delicate balance because you don't want to be like the helicopter parent. But at the same time, things like this have happened. And I remember, you know, growing up when I where I grew up, you know, we didn't have access to really any media in, in rural Vermont in terms of, you know, these cases where children were missing. But we had those milk cartons. And I remember being, I was afraid. I remember being very afraid when I saw those. What about you, Toby? Do you have that sort of same sort of memory when you were growing up? And has it carried over into your parenting life? About being scared about being. Yeah. And the milk carton thing and just sort of seeing those kids faces every time you had a bowl of cereal in the morning. I remember that too. You know, quite honestly, I don't think it registered at that level. I don't think it was a sort of there, but for the grace of God, go I type thing. I think it was, you see it, you think it's sad and it's, this story that happened somewhere else. One of the things that's most interesting to me about this case is that the jury did take a really long time to deliberate again in this guy's conviction. It wasn't like they came back yeah. in a few hours. It was days. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know enough of the facts of the case to sort of make a judgment about that, but it concerns me. And I, But I understand that the need for closure is so strong in this case in particular because it really did mark the city 
in a lot of ways. And Soho, which is where the family lived, Prince Street. Yeah, oh, was well, he disappeared on Prince Street. Was a very uh, it was a grittier neighborhood when the case happened, and is now a gentrified neighborhood. So I know that in some ways it feels like the turning of a page for New York. I think to have this resolved. But I don't know. I still have concerns about it. I really do. Um, I think concerns? New York childhoods are, are are so different too. They really I remember are. In yeah. college, yeah. having a conversation with uh, a couple of girls, and they were talking. They were both from New York, and they were talking about how their parents, when they went to play in the park, would give them a couple of dollars so that if somebody tried to mug them, they'd have money to give them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, oh, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a very different place. You either have tremendous amounts of freedom, what, what would seem like a lot of freedom to us, or like a lot of insular non-freedom. You know, my sister lives in Manhattan with my nephew, and he's the same age as my younger son, and his lifestyle in terms of being supervised, completely different. That kid is supervised all the time. Yeah. And our kids here, not so much, right? Yeah, you know, when you talk to uh, you talk to the people of an older generation, right? They'll say like, oh, kids today, right? Like you've, everybody has heard this, this conversation. Uh, when I was a kid and we played stickball and yada yada, the streetlight came on and that's when we knew how to go home. And today it's not like that. And, you know, when looking at this, it's too bad we don't have four hours to talk about this particular topic because I really think this is the BC slash AD mark. There's before this case and after this case mm-hmm. because I really think this is where all of that changed and it's where parents decided that there was the precautions that they needed to take. Too much danger out there. Too much danger out there. And the, and also the view of like people will think badly of me if I don't do X, watch them and let them and right. whatever. Because his parents were judged for letting their kid walk to the bus. And that's where it was. And that's before that. You could stay outside right. until right. Officer Krepke came and swept you <laughs> off the street. <laughs> but, before, but next it's like, you know, I'm watching you out the window and I'm calling you and I'm following you. You're going to drop a pin on your iPhone so I know where you are. It wasn't like, oh, the wussification. Guys, it's a wussification of America. And why can't you just let kids get dirty and fall off their bikes? And why do they need helmets and lawn darts and things like that? <laughs> but I think this is really it. But all the data shows that, first of all, instances of, of kids being taken by strangers are extremely right. rare. Right. Extremely we, we established rare. that in, in the dark. It's and all, yeah, and yeah. all the data also shows that when that does happen, it is in no way related to whether or not the parents were neglectful or doing what other parents do. I mean, even if you look at the Wetterling case, like those parents did everything right. Sure. He had kids mm-hmm. with him. He called. He had permission. They did everything right. But that does not matter today, does so, it? Well, what they say, and this is the philosophy that I've always parented by, is there's nothing you can do to prevent the thing you can't prevent. Uh-huh. So why degrade the quality of your child's life and their burgeoning independence by structuring it around things that you have no control over, even if you do do all the right things? I mean, that's my philosophy. I know not everybody is the same, and I'm not saying that I'm right. That's just sort of what I'm guided by. But of course, now we have this new era of the Amber Alert, which I think is like the new milk carton, right? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Kevin, do you think that the milk carton kids, the effectiveness of that Amber Alert could fade in time or that could become a vestige of the past? Uh, I don't know. Amber Alert's different because it is so immediate. And I think people really do respond to the the... You know, the immediacy of it. It has changed. Amber Alert, by the way, for those who don't know, is actually a trademark. There's a certain system which is called the Amber Alert. And there are, are other systems. Sued for talking about no, 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 it no. no. But there are other systems which are <laughs> Child Alert, whatever, and it's not the Kleenex Xerox name brand. But people have just come to refer to it as an Amber Alert. It's like the Q tip of alerts. Right. And it was only originally only supposed to be used when it's a stranger abduction. But it does get used all the time for non custodial parent abduction. But people still, you know, it gets on their their phones and people still pay attention to that because there is a sense of urgency about that Mm -hmm. versus a child who disappeared and whatever. So I think unlike the milk carton thing where it is an event that happened in the past, I'm not sure we're at the point where Amber Alerts are so frequent and ubiquitous that their effectiveness fades. 
whether or not like your hair color will fade and you'll have gray. <laughs> I see where if this is going. If it weren't for Madison Reed. <laughs> oh God, it's so tacky, Kevin. <laughs> no, Madison Reed is the first ever at-home hair color that gives long-lasting gray coverage without many of the harsh ingredients found in other hair colors like ammonia or PPD. So it's not just for non-custodial hair, but for also... <laughs> for hair that is actually on your head. I'm just trying to help you make this transition. Well, that was really clunky. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Wait, wait, what was the hair color that you have? Tuscany brown. Have you ever thought oh. of like going like auburn or... No. I'm going to go blonde. No? No. I look good with brown hair. Trust me. I, I just... think you would look good as a blonde. Nope. T- you know, temporary. <laughs> Laura, your hair color, I believe I've seen you lighten up over the uh, the past couple of months. Am I wrong? I have lightened up. I went to a little bit lighter after I turned 40 and I had my big turning 40 meltdown and um, I've gotten a lot of compliments on it. So, Well, no matter what color you choose, Madison Reed has a love guarantee. Uh, if you're not completely loving your hair, uh, their staff of licensed colorists will send you a new color kit on them. So if you're still not satisfied, they'll give you your money back. No risk all reward. So go to madison-reed.com to find your perfect shade. Take a chance. Don't be like Rebecca. <laughs> is there a promo code or a special URL or something? I don't know. I'm just waiting for the hate mail to come in and say, Rebecca's hair is horrible. <laughs> she needs to be, be she taking needs more risks. More, she needs to do Madison Reed more often. She needs to take more risks and not just be brown all the time. Yeah. She's like a petulant child around her hair. Throw a little uh, violet in there. <laughs> Visit Madison. Sorry, Janelle. <laughs> <laughs> Visit madison-reed.com. Visit today and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the code WRITERS. Writers. That's madison Dashread.com offer code writers. Writers. Anything else we need to talk about? Yeah. Do you love books but find that you're too busy smothering your children despite the low statistical probability of their kidnapping? (laughs) (laughs) What? Well, with Audible, get audiobooks and listen to those books that you've been meaning to read while you've been stunting your child's growth. (laughs) You mean smothering as in helicopter parenting? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, not literally smothering. I think that sounded a little weird. No. Wow. No. Audible has the great listen guarantee, so you decide if you don't like a book, you choose. No worries. You can exchange that audio book that you're not happy with with any title, any time. No questions. Hey, it's a new year. Have you resolved to cook more? Let the sauce simmer while the plot thickens. <laughs> what? Have you been- Oh, did you write that? No. <laughs> I'm oh. reading it off the paper. Here's another one. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Are you committing to a new workout regimen? No. Inc- <laughs> I am actually. Okay. I'm, I'm interested. Good for you, Toby. Totally. Right. Good. Okay. Committing to a new workout regimen? Yes. Increase your reps while you free your mind. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Yeah. How about, let's get serious. Who's got a new audio book they want to tell people I do, about? I do, Rebecca's I Rebecca's raising her hand. I am on book three of a very low-commitment, fun British detective series by Peter Granger. It is Peter, G-R-A-I-N-G-E-R. The detective is D.C. Smith, and I'm really enjoying it. Toby, throw us a title, will you? First of all, I, I hope that nobody's like, says, read one of Toby Ball's, their low-commitment books. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the other- It's, it's a, it's a Strange compliment. But here's the thing. I usually choose the books based on length. I like the 20-hour ones because then I don't spend 18 credits a month because I'm an Audible addict. But this time, I just kind of felt like some quicker hits. These are only like five, six hours each. They're lower commitment. They're still, you know, a commitment. Time commitment. Yeah, time commitment. I hear you. All right. I'm uh, I'm actually listening to a good one right now. It's called The Dry by Jane Harper. It's an Australian mystery, and uh, it's good. So, recommended. And Laura, how about you? What are you listening to that you tell people to download from Audible? Well, I just finished The Fifth Petal by Brunonia Berry, and she is a regional New England author um, based in Salem, Massachusetts. And I love her books because they're mysteries and they're based in Salem, which has, you know, the history of the Salem witch trials. And there's always some sort of a supernatural mystery element regarding the witch trials or something that's going on with the people there. So it's good. I, I really enjoyed it. Those are all great recommendations, Panel. Remember, you can't make more time, but you can make the most of it. Turn Ooh, your, that was a good one. That's one I had to read. I, <laughs> I, I, I can't take credit for that. You, had, you didn't write that one either? No, okay. no. Take your turn when you're doing your chores or working out. Make it something more with a free trial at Audible. Go to audible.com slash crime to start now. I really like those talking points. That's exactly what I do. I just like listening to the books while I'm doing other things. The Walking the store, dogs. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Laundry. <laughs> Smothering your children. Smothering your children. <laughs> 
if we have another snow day, that might just happen for real in my house. I walk around the house, people think they can talk to me, and I have no idea that they're so, even talking yeah. to me. I'm so <laughs> mad at you sometimes. I'm in the other room. And you pop the thing out of the ear, and you're just like, uh, Teddy, don't talk to that strange boy on the jungle gym and stick it back in your Audible.com slash crime. Crime. You could become a negligent parent as well. Audible.com slash crime. All right. Well, I want to move on to the review part of our podcast. Uh, This week, we all watched the now available on Netflix documentary called Shadow of Truth. This is a series. It's about two and a half hours long. It's in four parts. I had a listener say we should say how long things are. So I just said that. It's about two and a half hours long, but it's broken up into four parts. It's about the murder of 13-year-old Tahir Rada in the bathroom of her school in the Golan Heights region in Israel. On December 6, 2006, the teen failed to return home after school. Her body was found that evening locked in a toilet stall. Her throat had been slit twice. She'd suffered multiple additional cuts. It was a really brutal murder um, shown in crime scene photos in this documentary, just an FYI in case you're squeamish about that kind of thing. It is an Israeli import, and it is not a second screen experience because... It is subtitled. Everyone in the film speaks Hebrew, and the film does have subtitles. Which, you can't watch and tweet like you attempted. But you miss I, a lot. I will say, if you can do the subtitles, could be worth a watch. We will find out. Now, I do want to start there. Laura, you actually had a little bit of a acclimation period you needed to have around the subtitles. Do you think this is a barrier for people? It depends. And I've said this before. I'm one of these people who gets off track easily. Like if I'm watching something and I look at something else, you know, it's so it's hard for me if I'm watching this and I glance up for a minute. I'm like, oh, shit, what just happened? Because I'm not reading the subtitles. Um, and then I also had a hard time getting used to reading, you know, from the opposite direction. I was like, whoa. That threw me off a little bit for a while. <laughs> All the um, graphics yeah. that you couldn't yeah, read anyway. Like, there was this funny so thing he, that happened where I was getting up to throw logs in the fire, and every time I would get up, you would just start reading the subtitles out I loud. Would read it <laughs> it's like we're at the UN. Exactly. Go ahead, go ahead Laura. So it, it did take me some adjustment. And so, you know, it was something where then I would say, OK, I'm going to watch this now. I can't do anything else because I can't miss anything that's happening because um, I need to watch the subtitles. So it definitely wasn't my favorite part of this. It was something for me. I was like, uh, but the story was so compelling that, it, you know, I had to get over it. Now, the series makes the case for the potential wrongful conviction. The guy that has been convicted for the crime, his name is Roman Zadaroff. And apparently this documentary raised a lot of controversy when it was aired in Israel uh, because of its claims about the murder, the investigation, the trial. And it's eventually revealing that maybe someone else may have done it, which we don't want to be too spoilery here because I think the twists and turns are really good. Now, Toby, episode one of this documentary, kind of like open and shut, right? Like you watch it and you think, yeah, so she died and this guy did it. Did you think the same thing after watching episode one? Yeah, it is kind of when episode one's over, I was like, wait, there's three more of these things. <laughs> what is it going to be about? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I really like the way they did it, quite honestly. We'll talk I mean, about I think, that. Well, I think they, you know, the first one, they lay out the prosecution case and, and why this guy is in prison and wh- why people feel that he is guilty. And then in the second episode, they kind of take it apart and show how, you know, largely the way the police handled it, either by accident or intentionally, fed him enough information that he could hang himself. Mm-hmm. I thought it was extremely effective. I loved the way they divided the story into four parts. Because I like Toby, I was wondering why, because it just seemed... But the the four parts were first ep- episode, open and shut case, second mm-hmm. episode, taking apart the prosecution, third episode, victimology, and like a different theory of the crime around... Uh, social media, her mm-hmm. friends, and right. it delved into a really interesting topic when we've talked about a lot on this show. This crime was a sensation, a headline-making crime in Israel, and it spurred Facebook groups and blogs and chat rooms with people who believed that they could solve the crime, amateur yeah. detectives who then turned on some people who were likely not related to the crime in any way and made their lives hell and was sort of a commentary on that phenomenon. Kevin, what did you think of, of that twist in the documentary? I thought, and I think I turned to you and I said, this is the Israeli serial. That part of it, the reaction was very much like uh, what was happening in the U.S. 
during season one of Serial where people were getting together either on social media or in other forums and talking about the case and throwing out their theories, which in and of itself can be harmless. But there were a lot of people here in this documentary that showed that they went too far, Mm -hmm. where they decide that, yes, it has to be classmates, or it has to be this friend, you know, the ex-best friend or the whatever, and somehow find them on Facebook or some other way and harass them Mm -hmm. and tell them that they must confess. And I mean, we saw that with different characters around the Adnan case, that people were doing that and driving by Jay's house and all this other stuff. And, you know, people that... That are probably well intentioned, but are just like fucking this up for <laughs> investigators and just like ma- unfortunately making it very difficult for people who really not everybody at that school could be the killer. Right. So not everybody deserves to be harassed on Twitter to get texts in the middle of their TV interview telling them how horrible they are right. and that they should. And by the way, that one getting a text in the middle of her TV interview wasn't actually in school when the crime was committed. Yeah, I mean, she was but in the it doesn't army. matter. Right? But that doesn't <laughs> matter. But it, because it, it generates enough, and, and look, our audience loves true crime and they love to throw themselves in it, and that's great. But but I think you know most people realize there's sort of a line between what you can do in your enjoyment and when you be all of a sudden become an extra judicial advocate. Right. You think maybe your email is going to solve the case? It's right. just that's. Uh, you know, you just, that's just not helpful. It's crazy. Well, it just seemed like both the people who are in those groups who were harassing these girls over uh, messaging, but also the prosecutor and the police is sort of this unwarranted certainty that they know mm-hmm. and that they're really other facts be damned. The things that you don't know aren't important. It's just, you know, you can pick certain selected facts and not know much else and be like, well, I am certain it's this person to the point where I feel free to text her and accuse her of brutally murdering one of her good friends. It's insane. Now, one of the things that I thought, and I think, Laura, you felt the same way about this documentary that really sets it apart, I think, from almost everything that we have talked about ever on this show, is that Every point of view is represented in this documentary. You have the parents of the victim. You have the friends of the victim who were also accused along the way. You have the prosecutor. In a lot of lengthy interviews, you have the cops who investigated the case. You have a private eye who's working on the case on behalf of the family. You have the family and friends of the guy who was convicted for the crime. There's no angle and no point of view unturned in this documentary. And then, of course, at the end, there is that huge twist with another potential suspect that they sort of throw in, which apparently no one knew about before this documentary mm. originally aired. So I don't want to mm. spoil it too much because I think it's it's very interesting, maybe a little problematic in its own way, too, but also just interesting. Um, what did you think of the fact that so many voices and so many points of view were represented in this film? I was really amazed because it seemed like every time I was, you know, we'd get to a new part and a new twist and all of a sudden there would be the person that was involved in it. And I'm like, wow. I mean, it was just, I don't know if it's a cultural thing. People aren't as suspect of taking part in something like this, or if these people just really worked their butts off to get all these people. I was amazed by the uh, videotapes of the interrogations. I found those just absolutely horrific. That was like my making a murderer moment there. Well, talk about that. Let's talk about that confession that we saw uh, Roman give in the first episode that then we then saw from a different angle in later episodes. So, you know, as you're watching this, I mean, you're seeing these tapes, and, and I'm assuming that they got this because they are working with his defense team, and they, they probably had that as, I don't know how their discovery process works, but, uh, you know, you're watching these police officers just really attacking this man and, and, you know, physically putting their hands on him, like, not, like, hitting him, but, you know, really, really you know, you know, you did this and just, you know, on and on and on. And then even having somebody in the cell with him at one point, basically coaching him. And I know this is a spoiler, but it was just, I I really couldn't believe that this was okay, how this went about. And then later when there's another suspect who's being questioned, when it clearly wasn't the convenient suspect for the police, 
you don't hear it, but you're watching the transcript and the questions are asked in a much different manner, completely different tact. So I, I really found myself getting very upset watching this documentary in terms of just the way that the justice system was working, really not working in this case to protect people's rights. I kind of thought it was interesting that the mother of the victim doesn't think the right person is in prison for the crime, even though I think she might be looking in the wrong direction as to who she believes that I believe she still thinks it was the friends who were involved. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Toby, what did you think of just sort of the voices we saw in this documentary? What did you think of that whole confession, uh, jailhouse informant, and the, and the, the way the police went around the investigation? How they, they you know, they didn't have much evidence that actually put him there, but they really, really seemed convinced. What did you think of that? I felt like with a lot of the documentary, it was a lot of the same themes and problems that we've seen in the American justice system through the different podcasts and documentaries we've talked about just transposed to a different country. You know, it's that same thing where you're allowed to lie to the suspect. And they do that. And you see them where they say, you know, you've got her blood on your stuff. And he's like, that's impossible. They're like, well, it's there. And then as they keep pressing him on it, he starts to make up stuff to try to account for it because it's like, I have no idea. It must have been this. And then that's seen as him changing his story mm-hmm. and evidence of his guilt. So, and then the uh, having a informant in the jail cell, I don't think that's unusual here. So, you know, in some ways it shows that these kinds of police tactics, it's not just the U.S. And I assume that some of these things must be helpful in some situations. You know, w- once you give people the opportunity to do these things, once you give law enforcement the opportunity to do these things, I think you're putting a hell of a lot of responsibility in their hands to use it judiciously, not to abuse it. And I think it's tough. And I think we've, again, it's another thing that we've we've seen before. It's the police think they find the right guy. And if that means lying to trip him up or getting a jailhouse snitch in there or whatever it is, you know, you can see where the temptation is. I guess there's not enough of a check and balance in the U.S., the Supreme Court says it's okay for police to use deceptive tactics, and, and I'm okay with that. And I think it's effective when you have somebody who maybe really is the perpetrator, and you're bluffing that you know they may show more of their cards. And I Why think, are you okay with that? I'm just curious. Because I think that's an okay tactic. I mean, your goal is to find the culprit, and, and I have an example. I'm gonna let me let me get okay. to it in a sec. But if you're somebody who didn't do it, and they tell you that they have evidence that you did, and they show it, it works. It, this is the perfect example in this case. Your head will start spinning as to figure out why that is, and you will doubt yourself. Now, for example, suppose I had. A bunch of papers that I needed to read for this podcast. Mm -hmm. And suppose I couldn't find them, and they were in the trash. And I pulled them out, and I said, well, one of us threw this in here. And you say, you didn't do it. You say, it wasn't you, right? I didn't clean up the kitchen, so I know I didn't do it. But what if I said, but Rebecca, your fingerprints are on this. No, that's not possible. But they are. Yeah, that's not but possible. But they are. Okay, oh, wait, right. but maybe I did but throw them away and I just don't but, but eventually. <laughs> well, you're too strong-willed. For me, I'm stupid about that. <laughs> too I'm like, oh, maybe I didn't do the laundry. I don't know. It happened a million <laughs> times around the house. But eventually, if it was me, right, I'd be like, well, why did it happen that way? Then you start thinking, well, if they're so sure, how did it happen? You will come up with a narrative that fits the lie that they tell you. Mm -hmm. So when you've got the guy who really did it, it's a great way to bluff him into giving you more information and more and more. And then you then you trap him. If it's somebody that really didn't do it, both you as an investigator and you as a suspect are going to go down this path of falsehoods that both of you are believing. And then you wind up eventually in a place where they're videotaping you and you're taking them to the wrong bathroom where the homicide occurred. See, I don't think I don't think it should be okay for the cops to lie to people. I think it's a tactic that gets leaned on. And I think that in some countries, when cops are interrogating suspects and they've been cautioned, there's like a disclosure process during the interview. They have to show them what they have, which is the reason why they're asking them these questions. That to me, granted, I know that this like it's like you want the most expeditious way to sort of wrap things up. And a lot of times people are guilty and they will just lie. 
But how is it better to lie in return to get to the truth? Why not use evidence and why not use investigative stuff? Why well, use Well, that is that? part of the investigative. You're talking about a very sort of high-level philosophy. It might be but high you, you, level, but it doesn't mean that. But it, you'll never be able to do the thing with say, "Hey, Tony, Larry's in the other room, and he's about to flip on you. So whoever comes up with the the truth first gets the deal." That's your favorite thing on Law and Order. Favorite thing on Law and Order, but do I yeah. think it's right? I don't. <laughs> I don't know, Laura. What do you think? It makes me wild when I see it, and I understand they're allowed to do it. But I feel like in this documentary, it went beyond just telling them different information. It was aggressive. They were really just really on this guy in such a way. You know, what did you expect this guy to say? I mean, it just I feel like there's certain boundaries that they're crossing in this in this particular case that really went too far. And I wasn't sure. I thought it was like a police officer that was like hiding out in the cell. Did you guys was it was it informant? Was it no, another I inmate? Think it, I think it was a real I think it was a cop. I think somebody pretending that's, to be an inmate. It sounded like, no, it sounded yeah, like that's it was what I thought. Guy, I thought it was a cop because he was like coaching was him on what to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> I agree with you, Rebecca. I just I feel like it doesn't seem right to me. And I, I understand they do it all the time. And I know there's people that are full of shit and they are going to lie and lie and lie. And I've dealt with these people, but I just don't feel like this sets a good tone and a good precedent. So that that's where I come from on it. Now, uh, without... Oh God, this is going to be difficult to do because I really we, don't want to spoil the end. We do a spoiler alert. We do. We do. We do. talk about this because it's, it's, it it's a big part of the it thing. It is a big part of the thing. This is a spoiler alert. We're just going to talk a little bit about what happens near the end of this uh, briefly. The documentary does identify a potential other suspect in this murder, and they do it through somebody who knew her, through an ex-boyfriend. And they present a lot of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. She could be the person who committed this crime. And then they present a lot of interviews slash. <laughs> it's very hard to explain unless you see it. I just want to know, go around the horn and see if anybody had was troubled by, had ethical problems with or liked the way the film handled this twist in the final episode, which really was what the final episode was about. Toby, what do you think? I'm going to start with you because I feel like you have feelings here. You know, the fact that they turned that up. I think meant it needed to be aired in some way. The problem in some respects is that the guy who's the, you know, the witness yep. who's who's basically putting his ex-girlfriend in the frame. I mean, he uh, you talk about a guy who would not stand up in court very well. I think I mean, he clearly is very disturbed too. You know, if his allegations are true, he was basically letting this woman who he had every reason to suspect would kill again and again and again. And he just, he didn't do anything about it. He just didn't feel like doing anything about it. So you think it. he has credibility issues? I think he's got huge credibility issues. And if what he's saying is true, and they talk to him about, you know, do you understand about abetting? It's like, yeah, it's like abetting that one thing, but then... You know, the way he portrays her as is basically as having bloodlust. Right. You know? Right. And like, being really literally. ill at the same time. But so to be fair, they also did not, they concealed their identities in the documentary, which I thought was an interesting choice as mm -hmm, well, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that sort of shield some of this too? Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, I think that they used initials, so they didn't give enough clues about who they, I'm sure people there know who they are. They had him record under darkness, so you couldn't see his face. But it's just, it, it almost reminded me, the way that they set this up, I felt like more like I was reading a good mystery book. And all of a sudden at the end, the real reveal came out and I was like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. Um, and, and there was one detail, you know, because, yeah, I agree with Toby. This guy, he would get, you know, just picked apart if he was ever any sort of a witness in this case because of, you know, his past issues with her. Why did he wait six years? Why did he come forward after they broke up? And they had this very tumultuous, violent sexual relationship. But there was one detail that he said she was in the bathroom and somebody came in and she said occupied. Right. And that was the detail. I was like, that makes me feel like this is authentic. Which we heard um, in a witness statement someone had said happened to them when they went into the bathroom around yes. the time of the murder. Right. But I, again, it felt like I was like reading a book or, you know, it didn't seem like real life to me almost because it was just like 
one bad thing after another. And then, oh, now we have somebody else who has heard the same story. Oh, but they're dead and killed themselves. And now this other person who's going to carry on and do something about it. Oh, now they're dead too. So, and uh, you know, so it just seemed like, <laughs> I forgot about know, that. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, what the hell? Like yeah. seriously? Yeah, a lot of, a lot really? of really troubled people around that story. Yeah. Well, I, I think it is a very interesting way to wrap up, you know, what was a very, very compelling and interesting true crime documentary. So I'm just going to go around the table as I do. Um, ask the question, do you recommend to our listeners that if they enjoy subtitles and watching the subtitles, <laughs> which, by the way, I got over it like really quickly. As long as you don't look away, it's great. Um, would you recommend to our listeners that they watch this four-part Netflix documentary, Shadow of Truth? Laura, I'm going to start with you. I would say yes, but be prepared if you're like me. Uh, you know, think back to when you watched Making a Murderer. If you were yelling at your TV, you're going to be doing it again. <laughs> what about you, Toby? What do you think? Yeah, I thought it was excellent. I thought it was really, really good. I loved it, too, even though the end, the mixed feelings I have about the fourth part, I actually like that I have those mixed feelings. And I kind of wish all of our listeners were with us, were with us so we could just like hash it out and talk about it. I thought it was really well done. Every point of view represented. So many things that we've talked about in the podcast wrapped up in one thing. Understated, yet really gory at the same time. All the things that are great about true crime. I loved it. What do you think, Kevin? Should our listeners spend the two and a half hours to watch Shadow of Truth on Netflix? Yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of surprised at how few stars it got on Netflix. Maybe because of the subtitles, probably, right? It could be. Yes. I'm going to say yes, but that is no joke. I'm going to qualify it by saying that is, like your first question, a huge barrier for entry for a lot of viewers. It will be because it is all this is subtitles. Because it's America, right. <laughs> um, but but that it, you have to watch. It's two and a half hours of reading. And the graphics are... Are, end up being like documents in Hebrew, which don't you know help. You're reading some, you know, you're reading more subtitles. But if you can get beyond that, and also if you can get beyond the idea that after episode one, yes, there is another side to the story. I would say yes, watch Shadow of Truth. But you're not going to sit back, eat popcorn, and watch this. You're going to have to pay attention mm-hmm. and. If you know that that's not the kind of thing you're going to enjoy or you think you're up for it, that should be the, the the thing that helps you make your decision. All right. I have some breaking news. I just want to like interrupt the show for a second. We just received a not hate email. Um, We sent out a newsletter earlier this evening talking about Shadow of Truth and talking about uh, Missing Richard Simmons, which we're going to be talking about next week. And we got a note back from Mary who says, guys, you are doing God's work. Oh, that's so <laughs> nice. So that helps ease some of the pain from earlier. So, Kevin, were you about to say something? And I, I was just going to say that God would really like everybody to subscribe to Simply Safe. <laughs> Actually, I can't really back that up. But, you know... <laughs> Really? You can't? Toby's choking on something, yeah. (laughs) Hey, as much as we love to investigate crime and write about it, no one really wants to experience crime firsthand. That's why having home security that you can rely on is essential. And with Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts, and it doesn't cost you that much. We had a listener on Twitter tweet to us after the last time we talked about Simply Safe. She got on, on the horn and ordered it and loved Simply yeah, Safe. Yeah, she actually got Simply Safe, then heard us advertising it on our podcast and said, oh shoot, I didn't use your promo code, and then Simply Safe tweeted her back and said, we'll hook you up. Yes, that was fantastic. <laughs> and I also give cred to Simply Safe because they were in Boston on the day the Patriots had their celebratory parade. Apparently there was at least one New York Jets fan working at Simply Safe. Mm. Simply Safe uses <laughs> a lightning fast wireless cellular connection that can't be cut by intruders. Suck it intruders. We just <laughs> we just outsmarted you. Plus you get alarm and activity alerts sent directly to your phone so you know exactly what's happening. So, it's a lot less expensive, no long-term contracts and it's way better. It's unbeatable protection for a great value, no strings attached. So protect your home the smart way. Visit Simply safe.com slash criminal to get 10% off your system today. That's S-I-M-P-L-I safe. Simply safe.com slash criminal. Criminal. Don't be a criminal. I, I had an attempted situation at my house today. So I'm right in this <gasps> What? Was oh, it the UPS guy? No, this was like legit. Like I called the cops. Ah. <laughs> it's like totally sketched out. Damn, and I was like, simply safe, Laura. 
That's what I'm saying. I, I just wrote down the promo code. I think that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's s i m p l i safe dot com slash criminal. Plus, you would get yeah. an alert on your cell phone, but only if you've got a really good plan, which is where Total Wireless comes <gasps> in. New sponsor, Total Wireless. That's right. You need a provider you can trust, which is why you need Total Wireless. They have unlimited talk and text. With five gigabytes of 4G LTE plus data, starting at just thirty-five dollars a month, and a family share plan at twenty-five dollars per line, for unlimited talk and text, and fifteen gigabytes of shared 4G LTE data on four lines. It's great because you can either get a new phone, and like these are all legit smartphones. It's not like some ancient Star Trek phone. <laughs> Flip phone that you know you saw Push them. to talk. Yeah, you saw them use on Saved by the Bell. You could get a you can use an iPhone seven right. or a Galaxy S six. And if even you already have a phone, you can keep it. You can keep your own number, and it's a no worry. 30-day plants, that simple, and it is the largest nationwide coverage network in America. Learn more about the great plants and phone selections at TotalWireless.com. That's TotalWireless.com. Now, I feel like one of those girls in Shadow of Truth who was getting like the real-time messaging. Put your phone down so you see. We, we could, just got another one. Yeah, okay. Thanks again for giving us all the great listening, says June. Suck it, haters. Suck it. If we can thank anybody <laughs> before we go to Crime of the Week, we should thank this person right here. Yes, we want to throw a big thanks to Nicole Perrion. She is the wonderful listener who made us our Square Egg Studio studio sign. And I'm hoping in a future newsletter, if Nicole shares with us her business details, if any of you have sign needs, she's great at it. She sent us a beautiful sign for our Square big Egg signs, Studio. Big signs, little signs, signs. We're going to tweet out the sign that she made for Square Egg Studio. So thank you so Great. much for the sign, Nicole. We really appreciate it. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. This is local, guys. My favorite kind of crime of the week. Local to you. Police in Rochester, New Hampshire, caught a fugitive after a little bit of a spin and a little bit of a tumble. They say they captured the fugitive from Justice, who was from the state of Maine, hiding in a clothes dryer. <laughs> Vanessa Spear was wanted on burglary charges when officers found her scrunched up inside the Maytag. On their Facebook page, the Rochester police called it, quote, a rousing round of hide and seek. Uh, Miss Spear is currently awaiting extradition. So here's my question. Hiding in a dryer. Got to be pretty small to do that. My question is, panel, where is your favorite place to hide when you play hide and seek? Or where would be the best place to hide in your home when you play hide and seek? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Oh, my. Well, you know, I haven't done this since I was a child. But as a child, my favorite place was in the hayloft in the barn because you could hide behind bales of hay and really oh, nobody could so find you there. So bucolic. Way. I know. <laughs> it's, oh, Jesus. Did you run to the Green Gables, Anne? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did not. Hey, there wasn't much else going on out in the middle of nowhere. Well, her sister Mary was blind. Oh, God. I was accused of being Laura Ingalls this week when I was driving the tractor around in the snow. Pa couldn't afford a tractor. You know, they lived in a little house in the big woods. What about you, Toby? Where is your favorite place to hide when I'm playing hide and seek? Uh, Well, we used to have pretty extravagant games up at uh, Winnipesaukee. One place to hide was my buddy's has a dock where there was like a gap between the cribs so you could go underneath the dock in the water and just hide like a sea monster yeah essentially like a sea monster (laughs) except you're hiding instead of lurking lurking exactly same thing actually i have a confession yeah um, you know how I hate suspense? Yeah. I fucking hate hide and seek for exactly that reason. <laughs> so afraid someone's going to come out and go boo? When I was a kid and I hide and seek was happening, I would just surrender. At the beginning, I would hide and I'd be like, no, 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 I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> because I could not handle the feeling of being stalked, like at all. This is Rebecca hiding during hide and seek. She puts her hands over her eyes and I'm like, oh, you got me. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? Where's your favorite place to hide? Oh, I'm trying to think. I can't remember when I was a kid because we'd play in different places and someone's house would be here or there. And I'm trying to think back when Lily was really little. There was some place where I remember hiding and I was like, this is just unfair because there's no way she's ever going to find me here. But generally, like... uh, like you could squeeze like under a bed and put like a bunch of like a comforter. You could like fluff it up. 
enough that you could hide like a body. Mm-hmm. And that was always a good place. <laughs> but I will say that nowadays when we we do the Easter egg hunt, yeah, like I end up having to hide the eggs. Yeah, remember last year like there were eggs like the kids just like we just had to give up on because I forgot where <laughs> I hid them. Nobody forgot. No, them. Was, oh, like, we've had to do a map. Do a map. Yeah, I should have. I should have like marked them all down. But my favorite place is the uh, the tire well in the car in the in the driveway. Everyone's running around in the grass. They don't check the cars in the driveway. All right. So that's what that fucking noise is in my wheel then. That's what I am. <laughs> that little plastic <laughs> egg yeah. that had a, a Hershey's Kiss inside? Yeah, that's it. Well, I think mm. it's time to wrap it up. But before we do, Laura, do we have a cat of the week this week? We do. My goodness. People have been... <laughs> It's turning into a pageant. <laughs> it's, well, it's you should see. I mean, I get so many, I can't even show. choose. I really can't even choose anymore. But this week, in the spirit of the holiday of Valentine's, because I had a great thing I was supposed to do that got canceled because of this darn snow, I'm going to do a Valentine's theme cat of the week. Tina's cats, George and Wheezy, um, had little... <laughs> oh, they're moving they on little, up. They had little um, Valentine scarves on. And around their necks. And one of them looks like the grumpy cat. It looks all like, so that's George with the smushed in face. So (laughs) George and Wheezy. All right. All right. Well, for those of you who were not chosen for cat of the week. Yeah, go fuck yourselves. It's just a a fake contest that we made up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We're very sorry. And uh, keep submitting your cats, Laura. I know selecting the cat of the week is one of her favorite things to do. So, Laura Bricker, if our listeners want to reach you on social media and submit their felines for your selection as cat of the week, how can they find you? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if our listeners want to tweet to you, how can they find you on the Twitters? I'm on the Twitters at at ToryBallNH. And Kevin Flynn. If our listeners want to reach you, how can they do that? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn or the Russian consulate. (laughs) (laughs) It's better the second time. (laughs) And if you want to send me a tweet or follow me on Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Lots of dogs on my Instagram, by the way. The show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And you can always send us an email, hate or love, at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to our website where you can sign up for our newsletter and buy stuff using that Amazon link. Before you close your podcast app, leave a review for us on iTunes, especially if you love the show. It does make a big difference. And while you're there, check out These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. This week's episode, we talked to Jack O'Brien, the editor of Cracked. It's a pretty damn good episode, if we do say so ourselves. Also, listen to Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting. I am the guest host this week. and She's I mom. Do, I am mom, and I do give a little plug to Jordan Catalano. Our very handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show is recorded in Swear Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the closet in our basement next to the furnace, formerly known as Studio C. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. No slurping, no coughing when I'm reading this intro? I promise nothing. Okay. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts. (laughs) You need to knock it off. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime... By the way, you know I could just cut in this part and say the same thing every fucking week. Yeah, you really could, but... (laughs) Shut up. Partners in Crime Media. Critics are calling Charles Cumming the heir to John Le Carre. Uncover the truth in a divided spy from New York Times bestselling author Charles Cumming. Bookless gives a divided spy a starred review calling it, quote, an airtight espionage plot full of unanticipated twists. Read A Divided Spy by Charles Cumming. For more information, visit adividedspy.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.